Well, as you're turning in your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, let me ask you a question. How does one enter the kingdom of God? And a related question, is it easy or hard to enter the kingdom of God? How does one enter in, and is it easy or hard? Well, in Mark 10, Jesus says that it's easy and hard. He says that it's about giving up everything and offering nothing. He says that it's a simple thing to receive the kingdom. It's child's play. And it's impossible. Confused? Well, so were most of the people in this section of Mark 10 that we'll look at today. And really, they weren't confused because Jesus was being enigmatic or because he was teaching about things that are in tension with each other. More than anything, they were confused because the pathway into the kingdom that Jesus was describing here was so upside down, so inside out, so otherworldly than the way they had understand the pathway to be. I wonder if it seems to you like an archaic and irrelevant question how one enters the kingdom of God. Maybe you're still not sold on this Jesus thing, this Christianity thing. Maybe you're still not sure why anyone would want to enter the kingdom of God. Or even just at this point thinking, yeah, that's make-believe. That's just made-up stuff. I'm sure there are others here who are Christians who are not yet totally piqued in their interest about this sermon or this topic, this question, how one enters the kingdom of God, because you already have, because that's already done. You're in. That's settled. What's next? Well, to both Christians and non-Christians here, let me insist up front that this is the most important question in all the world for all people of all time. This question is more important than whether you'll get that job that you've applied for or whether that new business you started will pan out or even who will be our next president in the U.S., whether your investments will stay afloat, whether your kids will make you proud or your marriage will make it or how to do any of those. The most important question in all the world for each and every one of us is how does one enter the kingdom of God, and am I in it? The way it's worded in our passage of Mark 10 is like this. Just glance down at verse 17 before we read the whole section together. A man asks Jesus in verse 17, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And then verse 26, the disciples ask Jesus, who then can be saved? Eternal life, being saved, The way it's put in verse 15, not in the form of a question, but there the topic is receiving the kingdom of God. Or verse 23, entering the kingdom of God. All these things are synonymous. Being saved, being forgiven, entering the kingdom, inheriting eternal life. That life being not just life that lasts forever or life that carries on after we die, but true and abundant life here and now, and more so to come. Life in that eternal realm of God's kingdom, 
now through faith, by his grace, in his blood, and even more so in the hereafter. So let's read our passage in the middle of Mark 10, and we'll learn four things about how to enter into the kingdom of God, starting in verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. That's God's word for us today. What is the kingdom? Well, it's what Jesus came to bring. It's what he's been preaching about all through Mark, even where Mark hasn't been telling us Jesus stopped there and taught this. It says he taught. But back in chapter 1, verse 15, we're told the summary of what he's been teaching. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom is here. It's coming. The kingdom is the realm of Jesus' reign and righteousness and joy and peace. It's the fix for this broken world. And you might say, well, some fix. It still looks pretty broken to me. And I would agree. It comes in two primary stages. That was even explicit in our passage. Verse 30, now in this time and in the age to come. 
There are two ages in the era of Christ in his first and second coming. We now have the down payment on a whole new world that's to come. The kingdom is here. More is to come, unimaginably more is to come, but it is genuinely here because Jesus brought the kingdom of God to earth. But still, how does one enter the kingdom? Well, again, four things we learn from this passage. We enter it like a child, like a child. In that first scene we read, what a contrast we see between these unnamed people, probably parents, who are bringing their children to Jesus for blessing, and the disciples who rebuked them for doing so. They rebuked them. These parents apparently see Jesus as a rabbi, maybe even more than a rabbi. These people had other rabbis they could have sought out for blessing and prayer. It seems that they have some measure of faith in the uniqueness of Jesus. And yet the disciples rebuked them. And that's shocking if we recall what Jesus had just been teaching them. Remember, look back, chapter 9, verse 36. He took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And now here they are, turning the page in the story and a child comes along. Children come to him. Jesus told them, receive children. That's what it's like to enter the kingdom. And they don't receive, but they reject. They rebuke and block. Did they forget? Could they be this spiritually obtuse and slow? Well, yeah, that's the pattern that Mark keeps showing us again and again and again. And frankly, we shouldn't be surprised anymore. This, at least in Mark, is what the disciples do. They put foot in mouth left and right. They're just so slow to get it. It was back in chapter 4 that Jesus was first saying, Do you not yet have faith? In chapter 8, he said again, Do you not yet understand? Having eyes, do you not see? By nature, we all are ridiculously slow, spiritually dim-witted. So before we're too hard on the disciples for them keeping the children from Jesus, isn't there some small part that we can relate to in this scenario? Remember, they're on the way, on the way to the cross, on the way to Jerusalem. Presumably, they're in a hurry. Jesus keeps saying something big is going to happen. The disciples don't get it or they don't want it to happen, but they're probably eager to get it over with, whatever it is. Jesus keeps heading toward Jerusalem, and the crowds keep multiplying. Chapter 10, verse 1, it's crowds, but in the Greek, it's plural crowds, and crowds is already plural people, right? This is crowds, crowds, multiplying crowds. It's growing. The Pharisees are testing. Jesus is stopping for teaching, and now these eager parents with their weird kids want to get a picture with Jesus. Great. You can imagine. Have you never been inconvenienced by kids? As they slow things down, as they make things harder? Hopefully you've never wanted to get rid of your kids, or for that matter, anyone else's kids. But 
But come every August, moms, aren't you eager for school to start back up again? How many times have you gone shopping wishing you could have left the kids home alone with someone else as you can go shopping more freely, more easily, more quietly without kids? For that matter, don't you sometimes wish that everyone else at the store had left their kids at home before they came? That's even more the case. Kids slow things down and make things harder. It's in those moments that we might begin to go askew, and I'm as guilty as anyone. We might begin to go askew about what is truly important. And Jesus reminds us of this. He reminds us when he was indignant, it says, about the disciples' rebuke. He was indignant, angrily aggravated. But then he welcomed the children to him. Verse 16, he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. He prayed for them. He loved them. He put them to his heart, it says. He not only took time for them, but seemed to quite enjoy it as well. Then Jesus once again turns this into a lesson, a teaching moment. And once again, children are the illustration. Let the children come to me, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. In verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now let me rattle off some things that these verses do not teach because they've been as abused and misinterpreted or at least misapplied as much as any part of the Bible, I think. Verse 14 and 15 are not implying that babies should be baptized. It's remarkable how often this passage is cited in defense of infant baptism, and it's remarkable how dry the passage is. There's not a drop of water in it. These verses are not even teaching that young children should be baptized. Forget babies. The age matters not. There's no water. There's no baptism happening here. These verses aren't encouraging child dedication. Even if we do that, it's not because of these verses. These verses aren't teaching that it's easier for kids to be saved than it is for adults. Like kids are more gullible, therefore it's easier on them? What, what would that mean? No. These verses also aren't encouraging childlikeness and simplicity in all realms of the faith. So Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 14, do not be children in your thinking. Instead, be mature, be adults. But not to be childlike or childish in every way. Then what is Jesus teaching? Well, again, he's clearly using an illustration. It's to such that belongs the kingdom. We must receive the kingdom like a child. That's illustration language. And this is an illustration for anyone Children, adults, whomever. It's an illustration for how anyone enters the kingdom of God. Remember from a couple of weeks ago when we looked at that passage of Jesus using a child, the earlier passage of Jesus using a child as an illustration, we talked about how in their culture, in this time, children were not prized or cherished or, or romanticized like they are in our culture. Children were considered in their culture the bottom rung of the social ladder. 
They had no power, no clout, no income, no status, no immediate benefit. And hence, they were prone to be disregarded, ignored, pushed aside. You read some of the original documents around this time, and you get the impression that they viewed kids as this temporary necessity until you get to something more useful, a real person, adulthood. We don't have much of that baggage in our culture. We have other baggage, but we don't have that baggage. And yet even in our culture, which often idolizes children, just the nature of being a child in any culture can speak volumes to what Jesus is communicating here. Children are completely dependent on their parents. Children can't work. They can't vote. No one goes to young children for consultation and advice. There's no such thing as an expert child. They're small and needy. They don't contribute to the household income. They only contribute to the bills. Now, Jesus isn't pointing us to a child's innocence or purity or state of wonder. Instead, he's pointing us to their neediness, their dependence upon others. Nothing in their hands they bring, only to their moms they cling. To paraphrase the hymn. You get it? We enter the kingdom like that, or we don't enter at all. We enter in lowly, independent, without anything to offer or anything in ourselves to commend. We enter without any presumption except trust. Nothing in our hands we bring, only to the cross we cling. Jesus used this children word picture also in Luke 10 when he said, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things, these gospel truths, from the wise and understanding, and you've revealed them to children. Literally in the Greek, it's infants. And it's not that a bunch of infants were getting saved. Not that infants were going, oh, Jesus is the Messiah. He's God. He's glorious. He's our Savior. No, no, no. It's that those who were recognizing Jesus like that were like infants. Not like the wise. Not like those with understanding. In other places in Scripture, Jesus uses other illustrations to teach the same principle. That he came not for those who think that they're righteous, but for sinners. Not for those who think that they're well and don't need a physician, but those who know that they're sick and they need a cure. He came for the poor. He came for the broken and contrite. He called those who were weary and heavy laden to find rest in him. You see, all those are lowly, dependent, and needy. So we don't strut our way into the kingdom. We cannot enter with clout or status. We enter like a child or not at all. Secondly, we enter the kingdom not by righteousness or riches. Not by righteousness or riches. By the way, let me pause here and give you a little inside moment with the preacher. I'm not 100% happy with this outline because all my points are conclusions of the matter in each of those sections. And in the sections themselves, in the text, you don't get to the conclusion till the very end. 
The drama builds, and then there's this punch at the end. There's the conclusion. I'm giving you the conclusion up front, and that's sort of anticlimactic. But you're reasonable people. You can deal with that, right? Um, I thought it'd be more useful to be clear than to be dramatic. And yet, I think that this passage just sort of falls off the bone of logic and understanding and how it breaks down. So here's an idea. I think most Christians in this room could take this sermon after today, take the outline on the back of your sermon notes page, and you could probably teach it to someone else someday in a different context. Maybe you'll get invited to a nursing home to to teach or or to teach a, a Bible study with high schoolers or other women. Go ahead, freely use this. This is not copyrighted material here. This is, a, this is an easy way to think about how we enter into eternal life. It's one all-important question and four different answers here in Mark 10. Okay, unpause, back to the sermon. Not by righteousness or riches. That's the lesson that eventually we learn from verses 17 to 22. But the scene begins in a much more optimistic and positive light. Let me just introduce you to this guy that has this encounter with Jesus in these verses. He's young. He's very wealthy. He's been brought up under the Bible. He's disciplined. He's serious about obeying God's commands. He's humble and bold. Two things that often don't go in the same person. He seeks Jesus. Notice verse 17, he ran up to Jesus. Rich guys don't run. If they have a treadmill, they barely use it. If they run, they run slowly. They don't need to push it. They're rich. Rich guys don't kneel before others. Rabbi or not, this guy knelt before Jesus. And he asked that all-important question that we've been talking about. Verse 17, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he doesn't ask that question like the Pharisees ask questions. They ask gotcha questions trying to trap Jesus. This is a genuine question, an all-important one. He wants to know. He seems eager and desperate and ready for the answer. What's not to like about this guy? If in years to come, one of my daughters brings brings home a guy from college and introduces me to him, and he's like, this guy, I'm going to say, well, this is pretty good. It's a good start. I'm not promising anything. I might want to wait 10 more years or something, but it's a good start. It's a good start. But Jesus is not so impressed. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is poking and prodding here. He's entertaining the question of what this man meant when he said, good teacher. Jesus is good, but he's not just good. He's not relatively good. Only one is truly good, and that is God. I think Jesus is essentially asking, do you think I'm God good? Do you think I'm God? And I think the same question really applies to the man himself. How do you think of yourself? Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. 
I'm in the God category. You're in the no one category. I'm good. You're not. You're not. I'm not. This man was not good. And Jesus tests out whether he's tracking with them by rattling off some of the Ten Commandments. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. These are commandments that are all on the second half of the Ten Commandments. The do not defraud one wasn't exactly one of the Ten Commandments, but I think it's an application of the Tenth Commandment to not covet. Maybe it's particularly useful in asking questions of a rich guy. Have you defrauded anyone to get there, to get those riches? Notice that all those commandments on the second half of the Ten Commandments, they're more horizontal ones rather than vertical ones to God. They're more concrete in their actions. They're more objective and observable. The first half are a little more, well, vertical, less identifiable, less clear whether you can check the box or not. You will have no other gods before me. Don't make my name empty, right? So Jesus has given him low shelf commandments, I think. Important ones, yes, but low shelf ones, objective ones, observable ones. And the man said to Jesus in verse 20, Teacher, all these I have kept for my youth. That's rather optimistic. All these? You've kept them? I wonder if his boyhood friends would have a different account of his growing up years. Maybe his mom would say, your backside would prove otherwise, son. It's overly optimistic. Jesus has already said, no one is good except God. And yet the man insists on his goodness. Never mind that there's a whole other half of the Ten Commandments that are harder to live out. He doesn't mention those. He doesn't go there. He doesn't take Jesus' leading and think about the first half, which are even more challenging and more damning. And yet, how does Jesus respond to this? Verse 21, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. How tender. Yes, Jesus will go on to challenge him, but it's a loving challenge. Jesus loves the man and has affectionate pity on his blind unbelief. Jesus loved him and said to him, so whatever comes after this is loving. One thing you lack. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. This was a test. Jesus was putting his finger on this man's most sensitive nerve, his wealth. That was his greatest idol, apparently. It was, hence, his greatest roadblock to faith. Jesus wasn't selling him a spot in heaven at a certain price. Jesus does not sell seats in heaven. He wasn't telling him that heaven can be earned if you earn enough points and give up enough. And no. Neither was Jesus giving a command for all Christians for, of all time, for all future ages. Jesus was not doing that. Jesus was testing this man with a specific point of reference. 
And really, he was saying nothing different than what he said back in chapter 8 when he began to lay out discipleship terms. In chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus is simply in chapter 10 putting a finer point on it for this man and talking about his riches. Really what Jesus is doing isn't anything different than what he just taught with some children on his lap. You must enter the kingdom of God like a child or you don't enter in at all. This man would not enter the kingdom like a child. He was disheartened, it says in verse 22, disheartened by the saying. Literally, it's his face dropped. It's an unusual Greek word where it means something like a dark storm cloud coming in before the storm. His face went ashen, disheartened by the saying. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What a difference a word makes. It doesn't say he went away sorrowful and he had great possessions, but sorrowful for he had great possessions. That'd make for a great credit card commercial, wouldn't it? If they had to tell the truth. Oh, the world around us says, with more possessions, there's less sorrow. You want to chase away that sorrow? Get this, get that. Why wait? Have it now. Jesus actually says here through Mark, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. It should take our breath away that this man went away from Jesus and back to his wealth. He literally turned his back on Jesus. When faced with the choice between Jesus and his stuff, he clung to his stuff and fled from the Savior. He came originally to Jesus, desperate for eternal life, or so it seemed. But this man, on his knees, running to Jesus, on his knees, he was not desperate enough to enter in. Jesus warned us of this in the parable of the four soils back in Mark 4. Remember, one of those soils, he said, is like this. Some will hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke it out. They choke out the word, and it proves unfruitful. That's what this man is showing. He's of that soil. People say money talks. Money opens doors. It does. It can do things. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes that says, money solves all problems. It's one of those funny verses in Ecclesiastes. You you think, that's not supposed to say that, is it? Well, it means money solves a lot of things. It really does. There are a lot of problems in your life that you could actually solve right now if you had some more money. People say that money talks and that it opens doors, but there's one door it cannot open. Eternal life. How does one enter the kingdom of God? 
Thirdly, only by God's doing. It is only by God's doing. That's the lesson at the end of this next section. But the drama plays out, bringing us to that conclusion. The man went away, and Jesus began to teach his disciples about what just happened. He looked around, verse 23, and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. They were amazed at his words. A couple verses later, after Jesus teaches more, they were exceedingly astonished. Now here is once again a spot in our Bibles where we have to get inside the minds of those in the story in order to fully understand what they're thinking. And for us in this context to understand why they were amazed and astonished. It doesn't sound amazing to us or astonishing to us that it's difficult for rich people to enter into the kingdom of God. But there's even more to it than what we know. In the Judaism of this time, it was rightly thought that wealth was a blessing from God. Proverbs 10 and Deuteronomy 24 and all kinds of passages tell us that. But it was wrongly assumed that wealth was proof of one's acceptance with God. That God must be pleased with you if he's given you this proof. Wealth. Well, there's some verses in the Old Testament that seem to say something like that. But, but there are also verses in the Old Testament that talk about how the wicked often flourish. How they often are wealthy and rich. Wicked people can be wealthy people. Therefore, wealth can't be an indication of one's acceptance with God. But the disciples, like the rich man, and like so many in their day, had the faulty assumption that this rich man was a blessed man, and therefore he must be a saved man. It was amazing and astonishing when Jesus said that the rich in general, not just this one peculiar case of this guy, but the rich in general will have difficulty entering the kingdom. They probably thought that that guy would have been towards the front of the line, and they would have wondered, well, if not him, then what about us? Then Jesus takes it up a notch, but not before addressing them as children, Notice that in verse 24, children. It's the only time in Mark that Jesus calls the disciples children. No doubt he's reminding them of what he just showed them and taught them. You receive the kingdom like a child. No doubt he's reminding them of that in connection with this guy who wouldn't receive the kingdom like a child, but instead, like a child in the wrong way, he clung to his stuff. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. How difficult is it? Verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's impossible. You may have heard this passage taught before, and you may have heard something like that in ancient Palestine there was this small gate and a camel could get through it, but only if they sort of got rid of his cargo and the camel got down on his knees and shimmied through it and even then he'd barely make it through. And they called that the eye of the needle. And here's, that's what Jesus is talking about. So it's difficult, but not impossible. Let me clear that up for you if you've heard that before. 
There was no such gate, at least not until 1100 AD. And then they started making that interpretation. There was no such gate in ancient Palestine or Jerusalem. And even more so, notice that the text itself makes clear that Jesus isn't saying that it's really hard to enter. He's saying that it's impossible. He means to show us ridiculous hyperbole. Camels were the biggest animals in Jerusalem, and the eye of a needle was the smallest hole in Jerusalem. He's saying, imagine trying to take a giant camel. How many pounds? I don't know. I should have looked it up. 4,000 pounds or maybe 3,000 or a lot. Imagine trying to get that through that space. And any kid who would have heard Jesus say that would have giggled and said, you can't do that. And that's exactly the point. Out of the mouths of, mouth of babes. And here the disciples actually do get it. They get it because they say, well, who then can be saved? It's not just difficult. It's impossible. Who can be saved? And then Jesus makes it doubly clear or triply clear when he says, with man, it is impossible. Not hard, but impossible. But not with God. Now, it won't help you to try to find some comfort in the fact that you're not rich. Therefore, these verses aren't about you, that maybe you have some sort of better standing or it's easier for you to enter in. No, don't think that, because Jesus puts this in such impossible terms, no one should feel like they have a leg up or are a shoe in. The disciples weren't rich, and they're nervously shocked about what he's saying and what it means for them. Also, most of us in this room are relatively rich compared with the rest of the world. If the rich man or the disciples were transported to our house today, they would go, wow, you guys are rich. We're rich. And wealth can cause trouble for faith. It can. The wealthy are often rather self-reliant, confident. The well-off usually know well that cycle of working and earning and getting reward. Working and earning and getting reward. Working and earning and getting reward. It's hard to turn that off when you open your Bible or when you pray. Most of us are not in the habit of asking very much or needing terribly much. We're not in the habit of getting from others and freely receiving and proof that we might be of the rich that Jesus is talking about is the fact that most of us are really poor at letting someone else pay the bill at a meal, especially if we suspect they make less than us. Oh, no, 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 you're not going to do that. No, no, it goes this way. I'm sure I make more. It goes this way. And we won't let them give. Wealth often goes hand in glove with pride and self-sufficiency. The rich are rarely like children. Oh, they're sometimes like children, but in the bad way, not in the good way that Jesus is talking about here. And even if wealth is nowhere near your problem, it might not be the most sensitive nerve and hence the challenge to faith that Jesus would put his finger on. But, but there probably is one. What is it? 
What would Jesus put his finger on if you were in this story? Say, how about that? Why don't you get rid of that? Maybe it's family. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's success. Accolades. How people will remember you when you die. Any of these can be an idol and hence get in the way of true faith. The first step in salvation is to feel a desperate need for God to intervene and do something massive. We sing, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need for him. Do you feel it? And Christian, remember that your salvation was not humanly possible in any way, shape, or form. It's not just that it was impossible apart from the cross. No, no, no. This is about conversion, not about the justice of our salvation. This is about getting it. You wouldn't get it apart from his grace. It's impossible for you to get it, just like it was for this man. It's so impossible, it's like a camel trying to get crammed through the eye of a needle. John 3 tells us that unless someone is born again, born from heaven, born all over again, well, they can't enter the kingdom of God. It's that serious. Fourthly, we enter the kingdom of God not by bartering. Not by bartering. Verse 28 says that Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. It's a classic Peter moment, isn't it? On the one hand, Peter is simply connecting a dot between what Jesus has just said to this rich man and what he knows to be true of himself and his friends, they have, a few years back, left boats and nets and dad and, and houses. Not completely. That's why occasionally you hear that they're in the house. That's probably one of the disciples' houses. But, but they really did leave a lot. They practically left everything. On the other hand... This is proof that Peter's thinking has not yet been turned upside down or inside out. He doesn't yet feel helpless. This is commending self and hence bartering with God. The rich man pointed to his righteousness but refused to give up his riches for Jesus. Peter pointed to the fact that he had given up all his riches to follow Jesus, but he didn't realize that that doesn't translate into righteousness or points or rewards or demands. It's sort of breathtaking if you think about it. Notice it says, Peter began to say to him. I take that to mean that Peter was beginning a speech here. And he begins with, see, look, look, we've left everything to follow you. Jesus confronts that thinking 
but not with outright rebuke. It sure could deserve a real hard one. Another get behind me Satan moment might be next, but, but it's not. He confronts it not with outright rebuke, but with the promise of a greater reward. Verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. A hundredfold. You will receive a hundredfold now in this time and in the age to come. That's 10,000%. That's a really good investment. If someone ever came up to me in the street and said, I work with money, I'm an investor, I can promise you 10,000%. I mean, I would roll my eyes and keep walking and assume that this is a Bernie Madoff sort of character. You don't get 10,000% on a return. But, but Jesus' word is true and sure. He is no Bernie Madoff. But how is it true? We might be able to understand how it's true in the age to come. We can't imagine what that world is like. It's totally transformed. No sin. Streets of gold. Pearl gates. Glory as the sun. All those no mores. No more sin. No more heat. No more work, no more, no more labor and striving or sadness or sickness. We can get how the age to come may, might be a hundredfold better than any sacrifices we've ever made for Jesus. But how is it now, in this time, a hundredfold better than any sacrifices we make? Well, Jesus gave us a clue back in Mark 3. He said, essentially there, you receive a hundredfold mothers and brothers. Remember, his mother and his brothers had come to him looking for him, wanting him to be quiet. They were embarrassed. They didn't yet believe the message. They came to the door and Jesus said, well, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, listening to his teaching, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. And whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and brother and sister. Jesus wasn't obliterating natural families, but he was elevating the spiritual family. He was talking about the fact that his people are a family. Do you know how many Cousins my kids have? Look around. Look around, girls. This is how many cousins you have. How many aunts and uncles you have? Hundreds. They have hundreds. Oh, I know. Some um, uh, part of the same blood and part of the same family. They live far away, and we don't connect really that much, unfortunately. This is weekly stuff. This is life together. We have more in common than DNA. We would die for each other. We would give to each other. We love each other. This is family. This is beautiful. But what about lands? Did you notice that? That doesn't really fit what I just said. And lands? A hundredfold lands? Where my, where's my land, let alone hundreds of lands? Well, I think this is pointing ahead to what we see in Acts 
Acts chapter 2, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Acts 4, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Notice that it says the things that belonged to him. They still belonged to the person, and yet it wasn't his own. This isn't communism or socialism. It's not making one giant pile, then breaking the rest up evenly among the number of people. No, the things that belonged to him, they belonged to him, but they weren't his own. And they had everything in common. And there was not a needy person among them. Lance, I have been the recipient of hospitality in faraway places from people I've never met because we share in the blood of Christ. In England, many times over, in Amsterdam, in Guatemala, people I've never met have welcomed me in their home and fed me with their food without payment, without price, because we're brothers and sisters. I have homes all over the world do you know that? You do too. You probably have more than I have. You, maybe you've traveled more. You've stayed with Christians here and there. My wife grew up traveling all over the country with her parents. They were musicians going from church to church to church to church to church. I wonder how many homes she has, how many lands she has, how many people are uncles and aunts and brothers and sisters and cousins. It's beautiful, isn't it? And yet, we shouldn't be thinking anything like health, wealth, and prosperity crap right here and now. You hear hundredfold, and you might think of the TV preacher, and no, no, no. Remember, Jesus just said to a guy, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Oh, but he wanted that guy to the, you know, plant a giant seed, and it would come back to him. No, 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 no. No, no, Jesus was talking about a hundredfold that's not your own, a hundredfold that's shared in the body of Christ, a hundredfold that's not just lands or houses, but even more and even better, those lands and houses are shared through brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, spiritual ones. Within that list of promised, multiplied blessings is one that stands out like a sore thumb with persecutions. You go, oh, <laughs> shoot. Yeah, well, the disciples should not get their hopes up. It's not going to be all easy. How do you think you'll, you'll need? Why do you think you'll need these brothers and sisters, their homes, their land shared with you? Because you'll often be on the run. There is persecution. And yet... Whatever suffering we have is not worthy to be compared with the glory that should be revealed in us. Hudson Taylor was a suffering missionary in China for over 50 years. And at the end of it, he said, I sacrificed nothing. And you think, he sacrificed everything. Culture, family, land, familiarity, comfort. I sacrificed nothing. Because... Any present suffering is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Let me close with one final observation about the experience of conversion, because that's what this passage is really about, the experience of conversion, going from darkness to light. One thing I think this passage shows us is that conversion is an upheaval. 
It's a grand reversal. It is an upending of our lives. It might be less dramatic for children who grow up in a Christian home and they're nurtured in the gospel from day one, but for adults who are converted in adulthood, coming to Jesus, truly coming to Jesus, is an inside-out experience. It is gloriously intrusive and traumatic. And if you think, oh, Ryan, you're just being dramatic. It's not that bad. I had some questions, they got answered, and then I became a Christian. Well, then are you sure that you're converted? Are you sure? Are you sure that you have been born from heaven, born all over again? Are you sure that you were really transferred from the realm of darkness into the realm of his marvelous light? Or did you just come to believe some new theological ideas? Did you lose some religious tenets and pick up some other ones, right as they might be? Do you see how each of the people, each of the people or groups of people in Mark 10 are challenged with an upheaval? Each one is challenged with an upending of their lives, a reversal, a flipping over of all that they know. Peter is told, you haven't left squat. The equation is not you giving, but you getting and giving in light of that. But it doesn't matter whether you've given or not. You haven't given anything compared to what you get. The rich man was told to take on a totally reversed view of righteousness and riches, and he couldn't do it. He left sad and rich. And they all, and we all, need to become like little children. If you think about it, becoming like a little child is not an easy or nice thing. It's traumatic. It's intrusive. It's an inside-out experience. What 30-year-old or 40-year-old or 50-year-old here would like to be told tomorrow, the next day, you're going to go back to two. Two years old, still in diapers. You'd go, ah, no, please no. I like my self-sufficiency. I don't want to wear a diaper. How many would like to be told? You're going back to five. First day of school tomorrow. You'd go, no, I don't want to listen to a teacher. I should be teaching. I know more than she does, I'm sure. Yeah, that would be a traumatic and difficult experience. And so it is spiritually as well. Becoming like a little child takes a miracle. Only God can do it. It's not about simplicity. It's about dependence and giving up on self. We enter in as a child, and not by righteousness or with riches, but only with God's doing and his power, not by bartering or commending ourselves. It is hard to enter into the kingdom, and it is so easy. Enter in, enter in. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Here's how you enter in. Repent and believe the gospel that Jesus came and lived perfectly, that he is the one he said he was and is, that he died in your place for the forgiveness of sins and was raised on the third day and now lives forevermore, that when you put your eggs in this one basket, you're good, you're golden. He's the one. He's all that matters. 
His steadfast love is better than life. It's better than all of life. And in light of that, we can live transformed lives even with our money. 1 Timothy 6. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and destruction. But for us Christians, God provides us with everything to enjoy so that we can be generous and ready to share, storing up treasures in heaven. Let's pray for his help. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are sweet to our souls. We thank you for the miracle of a new birth, new eyes to see, new heart to believe. We thank you for your kindness to us. And we ask for your help to see you more and to see you better and to live in light of your transforming realm, this kingdom. Lord, we pray for more of your rule and reign in our hearts. We pray, Lord, when we find ourselves guilty and wayward and in love with the world, that we would once again come. We would recognize that we've been called out of bondage and into your marvelous light. And we would find forgiveness and hope and grace and peace and joy in this glorious kingdom where we're reconciled to you and forgiven for all of our sins, past, present, and future. And yet, Lord, we also want to pray that we would give more and more of our lives and hearts over to you, holding nothing back. We know we'll do it imperfectly, but we want to say and to sing that we surrender all, all to you we freely give. May it be so. May it be so for your glory and for our good. Amen. <laughs>